0: Welcome everybody to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Connor Glassy. I'm joined with Nathan Rohde, and we have Jim Callis on Skype. Uh, the draft is over. It was a, a busy three days, a fun three days. Now we're all trying to, to recap and, and see what happened, figure out what, <laughs> what happened over the last busy three days. Uh, this, this podcast is obviously brought to you by Dick Sporting Goods. They sponsor all of our draft content on BaseballAmerica.com and had a great presence over the over the past uh, month or so. So Jim, you know, you're, you're back in Chicago. Is that right?
1: I, I am back home. Finally, I, I kind of returning to the land of the living. I uh, feel uh, first night I had some, a normal amount of sleep in a long time uh, last night and, and I, and I feel vaguely human again this morning. Well, good, good. First off, why don't you just uh, tell, tell
0: our listeners what it's like to go out to, to New Jersey and be a part of the MLB network broadcast for the draft.
1: I, I enjoy that every year. I mean, it's, you know, it's always interesting because obviously I'd be doing a lot more at BaseballAmerica.com if I wasn't doing MLB Network, but I love being part of that broadcast. And, and I guess what, what sticks out the most for me, and it has, this is the fourth year they've done it, is how much everybody there is really geared up for the draft, too. I mean, you got Greg Amstringer, who's kind of the traffic cop at the desk there on the main set. And Greg loves his stuff. I mean, Greg will sit there. You know, obviously, I think at Baseball America we, we dig into the draft deeper than everybody else, and we do these state by state reports, all these scattering reports. And Greg will ask me about some guy, hey, who's ranked you know number 162 on the BA 500 about some nugget he read. And you know, Harold Reynolds, you know, has a ton of enthusiasm, and you know, John Hart brings that kind of veteran presence of a guy who's been in the in the draft room. And and those guys, I'll be honest, are, are just geared up for the draft. As we are at Baseball America, you know, Matt Yaloff, who I, I do the touchscreen stuff with, is great. And, and you know, if we're not we're, we're talking on air a lot during the show, but we're also talking a lot off air just about stuff that's going on. And uh, it's just very, very exciting. And I thought that – I'd be curious to see what you guys thought of this, you know, watching the broadcast. I thought this year there was more electricity than ever. You had five players there, you know, including the number one pick in Carlos Correa, you know, who nobody saw coming really as the number one pick. We knew he was in the in the discussion. So that was a terrific moment. You have Courtney Hawkins doing his backflip, you know, right there in, in, on the stage. And then you even had, you know, they got CeCe Sabathie to come in and be the Yankees' official draft dignitary. I, that room, there was more electricity, I thought, there at the broadcast than there had been for any of the previous five broadcasts, either on ESPN or MLB Network. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, getting, getting
0: all the players there is, is great. I hope that number continues to grow. Uh, the backflip, I'm sure, scared the crap out of the White Sox, but it was really fun to watch. I mean, I I have the, uh, I've had the pleasure of seeing that in person, as you can you can see on Baseball America's YouTube channel. I got to watch Courtney do that in person, and I was I was nervous when he told me he was going to do it at the at the NHSI, you know, this spring. On concrete, on the concourse. On, oh, I, mean, I, I know. I was like, if was he slips, like, he's
1: getting hurt. So. I was
0: like, hey, do you want to go to the grass? And he was like, no, no, I got this. I'm like, oh, I, I was really <laughs> nervous to watch it, but it was it was a cool moment. It was even better to see with you know in a three piece suit there flipping on on uh, on the set but uh yeah no I definitely agree I think there was a lot more energy and I think uh, baseball fans in general are kind of um starting to appreciate the draft more because it's maybe a little more evident to to casual fans how quickly you know a, a top draft pick can impact
1: a team yeah, I agree. You know, I was going to say the other thing that always sticks out to me about the MLB Network broadcast is uh, the, the difficult thing, and I think they do this well, is it's tough. You have to serve kind of two masters there. You have to serve the hardcore draft fan who, you know, is a fan of Baseball America and, you know, wants to know who's going in the fifth round. And you have to serve the casual fan who is just, you know, maybe he's a fan of a specific team and wants to know who their first-round pick is and really has no clue who any of these guys are. You kind of have to walk that line, and I think they do a very good job of it. And I hope I'm not sounding like a shill, but I honestly believe that they put so much work into trying to serve both those masters, and so much work into trying to get players there. And it really paid off this year. And I do think I think they'll have a easier time getting players in the future. You know, it's always going to be hard getting college players because the NCAA playoffs are going on at the same time. You know, they were able to get Andrew Heaney this year because Oklahoma State didn't get a regional bid. But I think if I'm a high school player. Uh, You know, there are four guys there. Everybody had a pretty good time this year, and I I think you're going to have they're going to have an easier time getting high school players going forward. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. You know, you mentioned that during the broadcast, you're you're in a different studio. Is that
0: right? But did you have a chance to meet any of the players or anything like that?
1: A little bit. They were staying at the same hotel I was at. You know, it's I'm I'm we're off in a set where they do like intentional talk and the rundown, and and it's a different studio, so you don't intermingle. I I did meet Andrew Heaney's parents uh, at my hotel the next day. I did run into Courtney Hawkins uh, the day of the draft when he was getting ready to go over to MLB Network, and it was funny. I asked him where he thought he was going to go, and he was kind of nervous. I mean, knew he was going to go good, but still kind of nervous, wasn't sure exactly where he was going. I said, I think you're going 13 to the White Sox. And then when I I saw him later, after the draft, I said, hey, I told you 13 to the White Sox. He's like, you did, you did. So you got to see those guys a little
0: bit, too. Nice, nice. Well, let's talk about the first round. I mean, you mentioned Correa was, was a little bit of a surprise there at the top, although... You know, I don't think it was it was a bad pick. I
1: think it was actually a good pick for the Astros. What do you think? I, I do and you know the thing was and I I think we tried to convey this I and mean, both that on the broadcast and at Baseball America. This wasn't a, a pick made because of money. This wasn't we're selling for a lesser guy. We actually had Carlos Correa ranked ahead of Mark Capel when we did our final rankings. We revised our top fifty for M L B network the day of the draft. He was a legitimate talent pick. I also think it was advantageous for the Astros because it was weird with Correa. I mean, you're talking about a guy who gets compared to Troy Tolwitzki, maybe even A-Rod. I mean, five-tool shortstop, bigger-bodied guy but could probably stay at the position. Great workouts down the stretch. He was in the mix literally for every team from one to seven. Every Mm -hmm. one of those teams was thinking about him. But if he didn't go one, he was going seven. He was literally like the plan B or plan C for all these other teams. And I and I really think if he didn't go one, he was going seven. So the other advantage for Houston was they got a guy who legitimately belonged in that number one spot. There was no clear there was no Steven Strasburg, no Bryce Harper. But they also got a guy who was probably willing to give them a bigger discount on the seven point two million allotted for that pick in their bonus pool than the other players. I mean, the word is he's going to sign, I think, for somewhere around $5 million, maybe even a little bit less than that. When we saw them come back in the sandwich round and take Lance McCullers, you know, and I think they're still going to have money left over after those two picks. But it's, I think it was a great pick from a talent standpoint. And I will also say, I know I'm rambling here, the Astros did something that I thought was very, very smart, and, and, and I don't think anybody anticipated this. They didn't really engage any of the players or any of the advisors until right before the draft, and they had a mix. They kept saying, we're looking at five people. I really think it was more, I mean, they were probably looking at five, but I think realistically you were talking Mark Appel, Byron Buxton, Carlos Correa in whatever order, and they didn't really engage any of those guys until right before the draft. So they really kind of took any, I don't know if it's leverage or just comfort zone, but these guys didn't you know, have much time to, to make up their mind when the Astros said, look, Okay, we're thinking about picking you. What parameters are we looking at? Uh, we don't like those parameters. You know, what do you think? They didn't, there was not a lot of back-and-forth negotiating going on with these guys, and it really kind of gave the Astros the upper hand. It made it difficult for the teams behind the Astros, but it really gave the Astros, I thought, the upper hand with the guys they were talking with. Sure, sure. Okay. Uh, Nathan, what, what stood out for you
0: in the first round? Were there any big surprises for you after Correa?
1: Well I think uh you know
2: certainly the falling of of a was uh was interesting uh to kind of see that unfold it's always you know intriguing to watch the draft and and see you know we know who the guys are and we rank them on talent and you know, it was supposed to go a little more true to talent this year, uh, you know, with the new rules and things like that, and I think in a way it did, like we've talked about, you know, the first eight guys, while they didn't go in order, there was a pretty clear-cut eight guys, and they all went in that first eight, and after that, you know, things unfolded as they uh, as they should, but, uh, you know, watching McCullers also kind of come down a little bit, and then the Astros being able to get him at uh, 41 overall after getting a guy like Correa, you uh, you know, I thought I found that pretty interesting. And like Jim said, you know, Korea isn't a money pick, but they do—they are able to save some money there on him, which then they can turn around and give to McCullers, too. Which obviously would be a coup for them if you just sign those top two guys. That's a pretty good draft. Not to mention they did, you know, take uh, some other guys throughout that uh, do have very interesting upside. Uh, you know, and then we talk—you know, we'll talk strategy later when JJ comes on. Um, but you know, taking those. Um, easier signs, you know, in the like five to ten, six to ten round range, and then they go and pop a guy like Hunter Verant, you know, with the first pick in the eleventh round. You know, if they have extra money left over, they might be able to throw it at him. But if they don't, you know, there's no penalty because he's a post tenth round pick. Uh, so just kind of seeing that specifically unfold, and then just watching it with these uh, with these new rules in mind, kind of how everything played out. Uh, was certainly uh, very interesting
0: for uh, for me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, you know, the, the Appel thing is is interesting because uh, on on one hand, you know, I think people are surprised, you know, because he was he was kind of a top rated guy all throughout the spring. But on the other hand, I think it also, you know, the, the, there's a point to be made that he was he was almost the number one by default. I mean, this class was a little bit. Underwhelming. There wasn't that you know slam dunk one one guy like Bryce Harper or Stephen Strasburg in the past. So Mark Capel, was number you know he was the top guy for us on, on some of our lists throughout the spring. But you could make an argument that you know some of these other guys were just as good as him. Absolutely. So the fact that he went eighth, I mean, it's not uh, it was a little bit of a surprise, but it's not a complete shock. Would you agree with that, Jim?
1: I would, and I think there there, there was something else that worked here too with these new rules. Teams, you had these new rules and you had these pool amounts and assigned values for each pick. I think everybody agreed, you know, starting at the top, first pick is worth $7.2 million in the CBA, but there's not a $7.2 million player in this year's draft. And I think everybody, all the teams I talked to, almost every team in the first round, no matter where they were picking said, look, our number is higher than the value of the player we're going to get there. I mean, you're going to see a couple guys get more. They're high school guys who maybe slid and are going to use college leverage. But in general, For the talent you're talking about, these numbers were too high. And so as a result, you had teams engaging players. And it was more difficult because you didn't know exactly who Houston was going to pick. But at the top of the draft, you had teams engaging players hammering out what that number was going to be. I mean, you're going to see – I think you're going to see probably at least a $2 million discount on Correa with the number one pick from his pick value. You could see million and a half dollar discounts on the next couple picks with Buxton and Zanino. You know, we're, or probably not as much on Buxton, but I think Zanino could be at least a million under the 5.2. We're, we're going to see some some steep discounts, and that money's getting reapplied. And so teams not only were engaging the players and trying to figure out exactly what it was going to take money-wise, then they were figuring out, okay, now we have the savings. How are we going to spend it elsewhere in the draft? So teams were plotting out their strategy well before. I mean, nobody knew Correa was going number one, really. Until I don't think a lot of teams probably didn't find out for sure until the draft began. So you have your draft strategy, you know, plotted out. We're saving X amount here in the first round, then we're gonna, you know, spend it here. Here's a guy who can fall that type of thing. And I think what happened when Appel didn't go number one, there were probably teams, and I'm sure everybody will insist, hey, you know, we liked player X more than Appel, and that's why we took him. At the same time, in my heart, I do believe there were teams who liked Mark Appel, talent wise, better than the guys they took in the first round. Um, but you didn't have time to react. You had five or ten minutes to you know, you know, his advisor is the Boris Corporation, which I think everybody knows. You know, you had five or ten minutes to engage the Boris Corporation and try to figure out exactly what you're gonna sign him for, which is gonna be impossible. And in lieu of doing that, it's almost easier, okay, we know we can get this other guy that we've already talked to for X and do our plan. If we get a Pell, we don't have that cost certainty and it might affect what we can do elsewhere. So I think I think the rules played a part in Mark Appel sliding as well. In some cases it was easier to take the guy you had already kind of had some discussions with and were able to, you know, plan accordingly. Absolutely. Uh Jim, who was your who was
0: your uh your favorite pick later on in in the uh in the first round? You know, a guy that you thought was a, a great pick later you know, in the back half of the first round? Or on the flip side, who was the most surprising player that didn't go in the first
1: round for you? Um well, I think I think the guy. I mean, you guys heard me rant about him a little bit on the on the MLB Network broadcast. I, I love Marcus Stroman's arm. I think the guy can get to the big leagues very quickly this year, and then you could try to maybe make him a starter next year. I thought Marcus Stroman should have gone the first, you know, 10-12 picks, and he went 22 to the Jays. Um, and it's great for the Jays. The Jays are contending. He can help their bullpen this year. Um, I also thought, you know, in the first round specifically, I thought Michael Walker lasted longer than I thought. You know. And, both Michael Walker and Chris Stratton, I thought were going to go at the, you know before the teens, and they went 19 and 20. And then Ty Hensley, I thought you know if you take out you know, Max Fried's the best high school pitcher in this draft, and with Lucas Giolito hurt and with Lance McCullers costing a lot of money, you know I thought Ty Hensley was like the second most appealing high school pitcher to a lot of teams, and I was kind of surprised he lasted 30 picks. You nailed my two guys.
0: I, I had, Wa-
1: I'm I had sorry. well all three of them actually. I <laughs> had Stroman, Walker and. And Hensley on there.
2: I was gonna say Stroman too, but you know I'm okay with him going to the Blue Jays since I do that organization's <laughs> top
0: thirty, and my uh, scouting report for him is already written. There you go. There you go. Uh, what about um, what about a team that stands out overall, Jim? Who do you like there? Just just pick one, so we can each we can each get one in here. <laughs>
1: yeah, I won't steal it, but well, I'll I'll stick with the Blue Jays. I thought, you know, they had extra picks, and I think we see this a lot. It's always easy to love the extra pick teams. You know, immediately after the draft is to get more of the top talent, but I mean, you got DJ Davis to pick 17, who's one of the best athletes in the draft. You know, very you know, good spot to get him in. They stole Marcus Stroman at 22. He, you know, some guys thought, a lot of guys thought he had the most electric arm in the draft. They come back at pick 50, and they get Matt Smorl, Ohio high school left-hander, who was an easy mid-first-round pick until he broke a bone in his foot. Shouldn't affect him long-term. But, you know, and I think, you know, again, if he went that high, my guess is they figured out a way to sign him. And they had two more sandwich picks. They got Mitch Nay, who's a third baseman from Arizona, who was really rising up draft boards as draft got closer. They got Tyler Gonzalez, who reminds me a little bit of Marcus Stroman, in that he has just two really electric pitches, high school pitcher from Texas. And the one, you know, Chase DeJong, you know, good high school pitcher from California, second round. Then third round, the one I'll be interested to see if they can pull off, They got Anthony Alford, who probably rivals D.J. Davis as the best, you know, and Byron Buxton as the best all-around athlete in this draft. I don't know if they can sign him away from Southern Miss football, you know, Southern Miss football recruit, but if they can, I mean, you're you're talking, you know, that's an incredible amount of talent with those seven guys in the first three rounds. No doubt. How about you, Nathan? Well, I I like what the
2: Astros did. You know, obviously, the pick uh, with Correa was uh, a little bit of a surprise, but he certainly was in the discussion for that number one. and. You know, you can't ignore what he could potentially bring to the uh, pr- to that organization. But then also taking advantage of that, they're going to have a little bit extra money there to go for McCullers like we've talked about. Uh, but then they didn't back down after that, really. You know, Nolan Fontana might be, uh, you know, an easier sign, but he's by no means, uh, you know, one of those senior sign guys out there where they tried to go really cheap. Uh, but in the fourth round, a personal favorite of mine with uh, Rio Ruiz, uh, you know, Mitch- missed much of the season. Uh, because uh, of a blood clot uh, in his shoulder. And, uh, you know, it's still kind of up in the air uh, when he's going to be back on the field. Uh, But, you know, he's a really strong third baseman. I think he can really handle the bat and hit for some power. Uh, and you know, then John Man- a John Manuel favorite and Brett Phillips in the sixth round. Uh, you know if you can save some money elsewhere, you might be able to sign him out of his uh, commitment. And then uh, you know kind of the uh, answer to our question is while these you know senior signs are going to sixth to tenth round, Hunter Verant first pick in the eleventh round. If you got some money left over, you can make a run at him late. Uh, you know right before the signing period. Uh, But if you don't sign them, you don't lose any money for it, and you can spread it out uh, amongst your first ten round guys. So I really like the approach, uh, and and like the fact that you know while they did save some money, they didn't go extremely cheap. They still did go for some guys with some upside. Sure, yeah, absolutely.
1: I'm sorry, I didn't mean go go ahead. I I, I think the way they they drafted all those seniors, I think there's a very good chance, and I think they're going to save money at the top with the Correa McCullers combo. I don't think it's going to cost the whole eight and a half million for those two picks. I think there's a chance they sign everybody in the first 10 rounds, including Ruiz and Phillips, and maybe even pull off Ferentz. I, I think I think they have structured this where they have a very good chance to sign each one of those guys. I agree. Absolutely. It would be fascinating.
0: I guess Correa has taken BP at Minute Maid today. I'd love to be able to see that. <laughs> but uh, me, personally, you know, I really liked what the Cardinals did, but they are another team with extra picks. So I'll go with a team that, that had just, uh, you know, their regular allotment of picks. I like what the Indians did. I mean – uh, Jim, you know, you probably think that Naquin went a little higher than he should. I, I love Tyler Naquin. I think, you know, he's one of the best pure bats in this year's draft. And 15 might be a little rich for them. But then after him, I like the high school upside guys they got with Mitch Brown, uh, Kieran Lovegrove, and, and Devon McClure. I mean, I think this is a, a really nice top five here for the Indians.
1: Yeah, and I'd throw a Schubert in the seventh round, a Hamrick in the eighth round into the high school upside group as well. And they got Dylan Baker, you know, a Juco pitcher there in round uh, in round 5 who a lot of people thought had a chance at one point to go in the first couple rounds i i agree they kind of took a different approach um you know i don't think they took a bunch of, of super discount guys in rounds 1 through 10 but they kind of took in in some ways you know best available player with each pick and i think they have a chance to sign most of those guys too yeah yeah
0: okay well um let's uh nathan and i will step aside we'll let uh, jj cooper come in here and you guys can talk a little bit about you know some of the strategic moves of this this year's draft okay sounds good
3: we're back here on the baseball america podcast this is jj cooper i've joined in here and if you are just interested in the analysis of the players and kind of what teams got what you can turn off the podcast now but if you are interested in what happened with the new cba and some of the effects of the new rules that's what we're going to kind of dive into now and and I don't know about you, Jim. To me, this was the most different draft I can ever remember because of the new rules. Did you, did it strike you as we saw things happening in a different way than we'd ever seen before?
1: Yeah, definitely. I, mean, I think at the top of the draft, you had you know with these pick values assigned to each pick in the first ten rounds. I think most teams felt like the first round pick values were higher than the actual value of the players. Like if you had an open market, most guys would not command the full pick value. And I think they set them, I think MLB and MLBPA set them artificially high. So the teams at the top would have a lot more money to play with and theoretically could land more talent in the draft. But the thing you had going on at the top was instead of in the past where you had these artificially low slots that were determined just by MLB and teams kind of realizing, hey, we're going to have to negotiate up from a lot of these. In most cases now in the first round, you were negotiating down from the pool number. And then because you have a strict limit on what you could do budget-wise in the first 10 rounds without incurring severe penalties with draft picks, after you get past the first you know, two or three rounds, a lot of the high school guys were just you know, going to be impossible to sign. And I think, and I know we're going to talk about this in more detail, I think everybody knew, okay, round six through 10, you're going to see some college seniors taken to create some money I don't think anybody thought it was going to be to the extreme it was. I certainly didn't. It just seemed like it was, especially the last two rounds, rounds nine and ten, it seemed like almost half the players were college seniors in those rounds.
3: I, I want to jump on first. I'm talking about the first round where you made the point about how it, it is true that in the past, MLB had set these artificially low slots for first-round picks where – it was notable if you did sign a player slot because most players weren't going to sign for slot. There were guys who were considered slot picks for that. And a lot of other guys who it's like, okay, the negotiations are going to start well above the, what supposedly is the slot for that pick with the new rules. What jumps out to me is, is at the very top end of the draft, the gradations are so severe that it actually puts a lot of leverage in the hands of the teams. The first pick, $7.2 million. The second pick 6.2 by pick five, you're talking seven, several million dollars less than what you could get at pick one. So that allows – if you have a draft like this one where there was no player – if you have a Bryce Harper or someone like that in the draft, it, it doesn't give you uh, the team that much leverage because it's not, well, we could take this guy or we could take that guy. But in a draft like this one, it did, I think, give teams a lot of leverage because if you're the Astros at pick number one and you say – are liking, you like Carlos Correa, you like Mark Capell, you like a couple of other guys, you can go to those guys and kind of see which one is willing to take significantly less than 7.2 because if you're a player like Carlos Correa who could go one or could have gone seven or eight, the difference in slot allotment, if you didn't end up going at pick eight, the allotment's $2.9 million. The allotment at number one is 7.2. Well, even if you end up getting five and a half or 6000000 million, you're still doing way better than you'd have done if you'd have fallen in the draft. That, I think, gives the teams at the very top end of the draft the drop from pick one to pick five. Pick five is worth half, less than half of what pick one is. That, to me, draft in, draft out is going to give teams a lot of leverage if there isn't one a clear number one. What, what do you think about that?
1: I totally agree, and I, and I think they had some leverage with Correa specifically because you know going through all the machinations and scenarios, what was going to go on the first round. I think Correa legitimately was in the mix for every team from one to seven, but I fully believe, and I I, I, I can't say, I guess I could say I know as much as you can know, if Mark Capel went number one, Carlos Correa was going to go number seven. He just wound up being the second choice for a lot of teams, and they were going to go in a different direction. And you're right, it, it does give you leverage. Um, you know, I think also what happened too with Appel is when Appel didn't go one because teams were trying to take advantage of the leverage you were speaking about, JJ, and, and trying. You know, and they also on the same hand were squeezed by a finite budget. You couldn't go over a certain number without losing draft picks. Teams, the Astros waited to really engage the guys they were looking at until right before the draft. They didn't let the players or the advisors, you know, do a lot of negotiating or posturing. It was more okay short amount of time, and we're willing to go in a different direction, I guess, if you aren't willing to go with what we we like for your individual player. Well, the teams behind them couldn't wait and just figure out, okay, well, now we know who the Astros are picking at 7:10 on draft day. We'll figure that out in five minutes. I think the teams had really engaged a lot of the players who were going to go at the top of the first round, figuring out exactly what the number was going to be in most cases, and then saying, okay, if we save $700,000 here, then we can put it into this pick and take this player when we get to that point. And so I think another strategy thing to happen is then when Mark Capel, who, you know, we had as the third best player in this draft. I think he was better than the eighth best player in the draft, obviously. But at the same time, there was kind of that top tier of, of eight or so players who were going to be the top eight picks. I think what, what what really happened is after he after he didn't go number one, the other teams had already gone far enough down the road with other players, knew exactly what those guys in most cases were going to cost. Had already started plotting what's our strategy for the sandwich around the second round. Where can we, we use the savings? that you also ran out of time. At that point, I mean, and I'm sure every team, J.J., will say, hey, we got the guy we wanted. We like this guy better than Appel, you know, it, pick X. But at the same point, I'm sure some of those teams had Appel higher than some of those guys on their board. But, you, you know, in 10 minutes is not enough time to all say, hey, Mark Appel well, is available. Let's see what he's going to cost. Well, you're not going to be able to pin that down with any certainty, and then you're not going to know what you're going to be able to do for the rest of the draft.
3: Right. I, I think the better way to put it, you're right. They're all going to say that this was our guy we wanted, you know, Absolutely. The reality of it is, though, is, is that the better way to put it is, is this at the price that we knew we could get this guy, we'd rather that get this guy and the certainty that we had for the rest of our draft rather than the uncertainty that comes with Mark Pelt. The reality is, is that if you're the Pirates at 8, you land a a, a better talent than you probably expected you're going to get at 8. The interesting thing now, that's going to be the most interesting negotiation going forward to the July 13th deadline. But what stands out to me is this. To me, it it's pretty clear the Pirates hold almost all the cards, as I see it, because Mark appel is not going to get. Let I'll, I'll make that proclamation right now. Mark is not going to get six million dollars. It's not going to happen.
1: I don't think. I think it's going to be very very hard unless the Pirates are. Well, put it this way. I don't think the Pirates are going to take a draft pick penalty. I don't think anybody's going to. I don't take a think Mark appel is worth
3: taking a draft pick penalty.
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I mean, I like Mark Capel. I think he's a, he's a good value. You get him with eighth pick in the draft. But you have no guarantee with the Pirates how the season's going to play out. And, and you might be throwing away the tenth pick in next year's draft. And, and I don't like that risk. But what I was going to say is, you know, you look at the other guys they took in the draft, you know, high up. Barrett Barnes in the sandwich round. Wyatt Matheson in the second round. John Sanford in the third round. I don't think those guys are going to be deep discount guys. I mean, they have some discount guys in rounds 6 through 10 that they can sign a little bit cheaper, but I, I was kind of eyeballing this earlier. You know, I think you can get Mark Appel to three and a half, four million dollars $4 know, by doing some of your discount stuff in, in the rest of the round, but I don't think you can, you know, their whole pool for the first 10 rounds is $6.6 million, and you're not going to give him, you know, 80% of that. I, I think it's kind of, to me, looking at this just from the outside, it looks to me kind of like a $4
3: million max. And and the thing to me is is that if you're, if you're the Pirates, what you do now, to me, to add leverage is you go and lock up Barnes. You lock up Matheson. You lock up Sanford. You lock up those guys to where you go into those negotiations with Mark capel saying, look, here's the maximum number. You can do the math like we do. And if you take it, great. If you don't, you can go back into next year's draft, okay, because the reality is for the Pirates, the way the system is set up now that's not a nightmare scenario. Because no, and that said, pick's
1: protected an extra year as well. Right. Now, now, now the
3: picks, picks are protected for two years. That pick's protected for two years. So let's say that, that, that they end up with the 10th pick in next year's draft. Well, that would give them, say, 9 and 10 in next year's draft. Well, if they end up with that, they would also have a massive allotment for next year, which would give them the flexibility to either – sign a, you know, go out, they could do what the Blue Jays did, tried to do this year where you end up, you know, drafting a lot of high upside, a little bit more expensive guys that you're going to have to save money to do. Well, the Pirates could do that. The Pirates could say, take two guys at 9 and 10 who they can sign for significantly less than the 6 or million or so allotment they'd have for those two picks and use that money saved to kind of filter down the rest of the draft. Or if a guy next year falls in the draft who is a top talent, you say, okay, you know, it's probably going to take, $4.5 $4.5 to sign this guy, they could take that guy at 9 or 10 and use, the, again, the extra allotment they have to kind of move money around to do that. So they will have kind of – if they don't get a Pell this year, it's not necessarily a nightmare scenario for them because it just means, okay, next year we – that gives us multiple guys to, to choose from.
1: Yeah, and the other thing they did too, they kind of covered themselves with a Pell also You know, like I said, I think they can kind of shift money around here. You know, I haven't crunched every bonus what it's going to be here for them in the first ten rounds, and they could probably create an extra seven hundred fifty thousand to a million dollars for Mark Capel. Well, let's say Mark Capel won't sign for around four million dollars, and I have no idea what's going to happen in the end there. But let's say he turns it down. Their fourteenth round pick, Walker Bueller, was ranked fiftieth on the BA 500. He's a guy who's committed to Vanderbilt. I think his price tag's right around a million dollars. So you could take that money you've created. For Mark Appell. That's 700000
3: Appel 800000 you have. Yeah.
1: And if you, he doesn't want it, you know, you, you, maybe it's 900000 get, You could probably get to a million dollars for Walker Bueller if you don't give the extra money to Mark Appel. And you know, yeah, would you like Mark Appel? Yes. But if I don't sign Mark Appel, I still sign Walker Bueller, which is like having an extra sandwich pick. And I essentially trade Mark Appel for Walker Bueller in the ninth overall pick in next year's draft. So I think they did a, a nice job after round 10, of covering themselves with the guy like, look, if we have all this money burning a hole in a pocket and it's still not enough for Mark we can go get Walker Buehler rather than just have you know $900,000 we can't really spend.
3: And, and that's the thing. Uh, that's the, one of the key points I wanted to get across on this. I know there was some confusion during the draft that people were like, well, you can't. They, there was a lot of thought out there that you can't sign a guy after the 10th round for more than $100,000, which is not true in any way, shape, or form. Actually, that... That may have been what MLB hoped you know, kind of be the, the, the effect from this, but actually what's happened is, is that you can sign a guy for after the 10th round for over 100000 Again, if you've saved money in your top 10 rounds to put a little money aside because any money you spend over $100,000 on a bonus on a guy after the 10th round counts towards your bonus allotment. But the interesting thing with that is, is – we'll get into this later – is that that actually gives you a free 100000 to play with on some of those guys. But right. But the thing that jumps out to me also about this is that what we saw under the old system is that the signing the, – the deadline, which ended up being August 15th, which was way too late. But the deadline put the pressure on the teams. That gave leverage for the players, for the players' advisors or agents in some cases because some of them you know, were definitely going pro. But that gave them leverage to kind of help push, drive the, the price up. I really think what you're, seeing, you're going to see this year, and you're already seeing a little bit of, is the leverage now, because there's a fixed amount of money, the leverage has shifted back to the teams because I tweeted about this yesterday. Let's say that you took – I'm not the Pirates in this example, but another team. Let's say you took a couple of high school guys who are going to be difficult signs, but guys who, if they get the right paycheck, you know, the right bonus, they're going to seriously consider going to going pro. If you drafted, say, three of those guys, and you set aside $400,000, $450,000 that you had saved up from your top ten rounds, it's pretty simple for you to go to those three guys and say, look, let's spell this out. We like you. We want to sign you. First guy who says yes to four fifty, it's his. Once that's done, it's gone. You don't have a choice. And so all of a sudden, you are putting the impetus on – the player making a quick decision rather than it coming down to the very end and it's like, okay, you're going to lose this guy if you don't make this decision now. Before, the pot of money was in some ways unlimited. It was limited by the team's budget, but that wasn't a fixed number that everyone knew. Now, in many cases, it is a fixed number that people know. So every time someone signs, that's more money coming out of that that pool. And so as the clock keeps ticking – there's going to be less and less money in that pool for a player to take.
1: Yeah, you know, like, I mean, it's you know
3: you hit the nail on the head. I mean, last year, I mean,
1: you did have budgets, and teams, you know, every team had a budget of what they could spend, and sometimes there was some wiggle room. But, you know, if I'm negotiating with a player under the old rules, you know, let's say I'm negotiating with you, J.J., and you're advising a guy, I can say, you know, you could give me a number, and I can say, well, you know, I can't do that. And you can come back and say, well, you can do it. It's just a matter of wanting to do it or my guy walks. Now I can say, J.J., I can't go over – $300,000 or I've got $500,000 left in my draft budget or else I lose a first round pick and we're not going to lose a first round pick. You know, it's, you know, it'll, I think more players will walk away than signed in the past because they'll run out of money. I do think, I think two things are going to happen with signings. I think we're going to see a ton of guys announced in the next 7-10 to 10 days who agree to below budget deals because the teams see, here's the scary thing. I had a couple guys tell me this yesterday. If you're a team and you've, you've negotiated or agreed to a below-budget number for a player, whether it's a guy in the first round or a guy in the 10th round, you're signing for $5,000, you can't move forward on your over-budget guys until you get those guys locked up on paper. So right now, yeah, there's a little – I mean, I think everybody thinks everybody will honor their agreements. I'm sure a couple will blow up for whatever reason. But those are – you know people want to get guys signed. If, if you've agreed to me for below-budget, I want you signed now – so I can move forward. So I think you'll have those guys done. I do think you'll have the expensive guys. In some cases, you'll have. I still think we'll have a, a decent amount of guys who go to the deadline because they've been educated in the past. The longer you wait, the more money that will be there. And while that not, may not be true this year, I do think you're going to have some players waiting to see. You know, how far will a team go? Let's wait till July 13th and find out.
3: And one other thing with that is, is that you're. <laughs> the, the funny thing is, is if you're one of these seniors who was drafted in the 6th, 7th, 8th round and all. Basically, you're not getting – I mean, we're, we're hearing four-digit bonuses. We're hearing – Right, probably, it could be 5000 bucks. 5000 bucks. Now, the interesting thing is, is that if you have no scruples, and I'm not advising anyone to do this, but the leverage – the only leverage that a player like that has is if you have no scruples and are willing to go back on your word, that's the one nightmare scenario for a team is if you draft one of those guys and he says that he's going to sign for five and then you bring him the contract and he goes, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to sign for five. That's the time that they have leverage because the reality is is that the player himself is less valuable than the money that is saved by signing him. Am I right? Hey, no,
1: you, you're right. I mean, I think
3: – I, I, a- I don't think – I'm not saying – I don't think players – I don't think many players are going to do this because here's the reality. Again, the player is less valuable than the pick. So, okay, yeah, you may get a couple of extra thousand dollars out of them, and you're done. <laughs> you're, you know, you're buried in wherever, and you're gonna have to basically hit a thousand to ever get a chance to do anything in that organization because already what you've established to them is they can't trust you. So, yeah,
1: and I was gonna say too, if that player, I mean, not, some of these guys actually have advisors. Some of these college seniors around six through ten, you know, maybe they were. A higher-profile draft guy in the past and had an advisor or whatever. I think if you have an advisor, the advisor's going to say, "Look, you, can, you know, they're, they're going to counsel against it." You know, if you're just kind of a lone wolf with no advisor and you try to do that, I mean, the team, like you said, JJ, is going to be very angry. They're, they're not going to give you like $125,000. No, and, and you're exactly. I they'll mean, go they'll eat they'll that, that do? money like, if they
3: have to, but they you you know, you Because may get...
1: that's the thing. If, if you're if you're asking me for fifty and I thought I was giving you five, I'm just going to say, you know what, dude, you're not getting signed. And you know, and believe me, teams talk. That guy's gonna have to go to independent ball and hit a ton or throw great oh, to serious, get another like, chance.
3: They'll just be like, "You're done. You not are gonna be blackballed through the throughout the uh, you know throughout baseball. I mean, yeah. So I
1: it's but you're right. I mean, I suggested J J coming in to avoid that kind of shenanigans and to avoid this this some of this mockery of round six through ten that went on. What I think they should have done, I think they should tweak the rules and maybe they will going forward. I understand why if you don't sign a guy, the money has to disappear in rounds one through three. Because, I mean, this is an extreme example, but if I'm the Astros, let's say I don't sign the number one pick and I have $7.2 million there. Well, I would get the number two pick in next year's draft, which would be $6.2 million. And then if the money didn't disappear, I could spread the 7.2 around this year. So I could basically double my money. So I understand you can't have that. It would be like way too goofy. But rounds four through ten, you don't get a compensation pick. So if I don't sign a guy, I don't get the pick back next year. I think they should have just told the teams, rounds four through ten, that money is yours to spend. You do whatever you want. You don't have to sign the guys. And you're not even talking about a big difference. The Astros have the top pick each round. Round four through ten, you add it up. It's $1.3 million. The Phillies have the last pick in each round. You add up their four through ten, it's $1.1 million. And I think the draft would have been maybe a little bit more truer to talent, and you would have avoided some of this goofiness if you could have just told people – do what you want with that money. You don't have to sign your eighth-round pick for $5,000 to save one hundred and thirty.
3: Well, how about this? Just take away the whole, you know, it counts for your top ten rounds. Basically, go, going forward, say after the third round, like you said, it's going to be a $1.2 to $1.3 million allotment. You have $1.2 to $1.3 million to spend on the rest of your draft, and any player in any round who costs more than $100,000 counts towards that.
1: Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. See, I could sign, like, my fourth rounders through 40th rounders for 100000 and I get $1.3 to play with is like, extra money to give them or to give my first round which, Yeah,
3: that would be fine, too. Sure. Which the reality is MLB is MLB's probably not going to want to do that because they're, what MLB doesn't want, it seems like, <laughs> they're, they're concerned about both, but they really don't want teams having that extra million to pay a, uh, a top talent in the first or second round. Right? Well, they're going to have it. I mean, the, the thing is, the teams are going to have it. They're just doing it by, by signing right. their sixth or tenth round picks for combined $25,000. Right. I to I I me, mean, mean, that solution, if you do that, it basically – you will eliminate this artificialness of, you know, okay, well, actually sixth rounders are not as talented as eleventh rounders. But you do the same thing because if you do it that way, you set. It basically, you have to have that gradation where your protected picks, the picks that you're going to get another pick for – This does not apply to those. Have specific slots, and if you don't sign them, you lose that money. But yeah, you know what?
1: I'm sorry. Beyond that, that,
3: yeah, I was gonna say. Beyond that, it it seems like you don't really gain anything by saying it's this artificial fourth through tenth round rule, and after that, it's a different rule.
1: Well, you know what? I realized, and you're right. The reason MLB wouldn't do your rule, JJ, is it would basically give teams an extra seven hundred thousand to play with in rounds four through ten. You'd get the one point three to do what you want. Your your extra money. But you'd also get 100,000 max to spend around 4 through 10. And so that would be an extra like about 700,000 per team. And when all is said and done, these draft rules are going to save teams a million, a million and a half. And so that would wind up resulting, if you went to your more liberal rule, that would wind up resulting in not save, saving about half as much money as they're going to save in the first place. So we, we probably won't see something quite that liberal.
3: But, but that's where, the other thing that, that jumped out to me. So I mean, obviously, the big effect from this was is that we saw a lot of seniors, <laughs> and you, you mentioned it. I, I think in a lot of cases, there were, one of the selling points was, you know, the selling points that there were teams were looking for, scouts were looking for. A, are you a senior with no leverage? B, do you have some kind of tool, of some sort that you're at least semi-interesting? Because, you know, everyone who has taken, it seems like that we've at least tracked down who has taken from really off boards in those fifth through 10th rounds had at least something that was fringy, you know, major league average, hopefully. Um, But I think the third part is, is, and either do you have an advisor who understands what's going on here or do you not have an advisor? Because I I really think that the biggest tool for all these guys who were being drafted there was scouts could trust that they were going to sign and that they were un- they understood the situation and were willing to sign because hey the reality is is i know some people listening may wonder why would a guy agree to this deal and you know the slots 130,000 and you agree to five a lot of these guys who were taken 6th through 10th round didn't even know if they were going to be drafted is what's crazy
1: you know or might get drafted in the 30th round and you're looking at five this way you know you're getting picked and you know the the, the thing is i think in some ways if i'm a team picking one of these guys one, I think a lot of these guys are the guys who usually go in the twentieth or thirtieth round where you're you're throwing some area scout who maybe hasn't had a player pick yet. Hey, you know, who's your gut feel guy we can sign for five thousand dollars? And I think that's what teams did. Hey, round six or ten, who's a guy you kinda like that we can sign super, super cheap? But I think the other thing is in some ways, if some of these guys had advisors who the teams know and trust, that's almost better than not having an advisor. Cause if, you know, even if you think the kid's a great kid, you don't know. The parents get involved. The dad may say, ah, you know what? Look, we owe $100,000 towards college money. The seems like they will give you 25 you are almost better off getting a respected advisor you've worked with and you know you can deal with that says, you know what? Yeah, we'll take the $5,000 because the advisors know. If an advisor is involved with a player who messes up a team by reneging on a deal – that's going to have consequences for the advisor going forward. So in some ways, <laughs> but if you had this. one of these Gutfield guys who had an advisor, it's almost better because the advisor is going to make sure the kid signs for five thousand dollars if that's what he said. The, the
3: funny thing about that is, and is hey, you know, I, I think that there is a, a very good rule for a very good role for advisors and agents and all. You know, in for for a lot of players in the draft, I'll say this: if you're a college senior signing for five thousand dollars. You may not need that advisor right now.
1: (laughs) Well, you may need that advisor, though. Think about it this way, too, though. That advisor may help you get drafted in the 30th round if you haven't been picked. Yeah, because at that point it's all over the map. So I'm
3: not. And I'm not saying go run out and get an
1: advisor. Yeah, but, I was going to say because you know, also you,
3: that five thousand now has become a little less.
1: <laughs> well, but I mean it, it's like you lose what two hundred and fifty dollars. I mean yeah. it's, it's you know the, the, the advisor is going to make advisor's not making a mint off
3: this by any Yeah, the advisor's going to
1: probably work harder for that two fifty than than the two fifty is worth. Say, you know and the interesting thing, not that we're going to get sidetracked. Time out about agents and advisors. You know I had a, some people tell me, oh, geez, you know, with these new pull amounts, you don't need an advisor, you know, with this draft. You actually probably need an advisor more than ever, JJ, for two reasons. One, nobody's signing for the pull amounts. You need an advisor who has a very good handle on, look, you could go and pick 18, 37, or 55, or you could go in the second round to two teams, but if you don't go there, you might go in the fifth round to be able to pinpoint exactly what might happen and be able to tell you what, you know, the best deal might be. And two, I've had teams tell me this. The advisors who have a reputation for being easy to deal with—I'm not saying that they—they're—you know—they just roll over and give up the player, but like you know, you can work out what you think an equitable deal is. I had teams tell me, you know, those guys—I'm going to their guys this year. You know, if, if there's three or four guys on the board and agent X has one of these guys, and I know I can work with that guy, and I know I can call that guy and in five minutes hammer out a pretty—you know—a deal that makes us both happy, and then I can budget further. I'm doing that. So in that sort of way, even though you have these strict budgets and these pools and, and these specific pick values, I, I had players and I had teams telling me I'd much rather deal with an advisor I know than, than deal with a guy who doesn't have an advisor at all because th- that part's a little scary. And we don't need to belabor that point. Right, but, but it's just it's almost like it, it became more important this year in, in some cases.
3: Now, I do want to ask you another team. We, we talked a little bit about the Pirates and the Pell, and I, I guess I'll, ask you, I'll put you on the spot. Do you think when it's all said and done, you think Appel signs, or do you think Appel signs do uh, you think know, Appel does not sign with the Pirates?
1: I would say I think he signs JJ. I,
3: I don't think it's a lock.
1: I, I, I would say – I would be surprised if the Pirates signed him to enough money that it cost them a future draft pick. That would surprise me more than Mark Appel not signing. I mean at the end of the day, I think they can get that number close to four. Um, you know, he is advised, you know, everybody knows he, he's got Scott Boris as an advisor. And the scary thing about Scott is, Scott's not afraid to tell his guys, walk away, you can get more money down the road. And to Scott's credit, in a lot of cases, even when you don't think it's going to happen, Luke Kochevar is a prominent example, it happens. So Mark Capel could say, look, I'm turning down four, I'll go back to Stanford, I'll go to independent ball, whatever it will be. And I think I'll, I'll go in a position where I can make more than four next year. And we'll see. I mean, I, 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 I'll put it this way. You could lose a lot of money betting against Scott Boris because his guys always seem to land on their feet. My gut feel is he does sign. I'd be shocked if it's enough to give up a draft. What do you think, J.J.? Do you think he signs?
3: I think he signs, and I think when it's all said and done, basically, again, in this case, this is under the new system, he's going he's to have lost a lot of money. Because he, you know, there was uh, other if if there was a the possibility he could have gone one, and it was down to whether you're willing to agree to it, you know, so they know before you sign before they pick you, well then, then he lost a lot of money. Yeah, because and I'm not sure. I don't think sure. I'll put it this way. I don't think he's going to get. And you're right. You can often lose a lot of money betting against Scott Boras. Scott Boras is as good, and his agency is as good as anyone out there. He's an advisor, not an agent for Appel, but the advisor for Appel. That being said, I think in this case, I don't think that Mark Appel is going to get, again, the number float around there. If he, If it was possible for him to have gotten $6 million with the Astros or something around that, I don't think that Mark Appel is going to end up getting six million dollars before he signed when he signs his first pro contract.
1: And, and I think we could say this too. I mean, the Astros have said they never offered a specific number. Scott has said, you know, his understanding is, you know, there was no specific number offered. You know, I, I think it was more maybe parameters were discussed. Right. Oh, yeah. I don't this, think this, hey, this is the one thing we I could say with certainty though. Carlos Correa. Everybody thinks he's signing for around five million dollars. So the Astros uh, – the one thing we kind of do know is the Astros are willing to go somewhere around five with that, at least, at least somewhere around five. Well, I don't think Mark Appel is getting $5 million in this draft. Right. So I, I don't know that he turned down a specific number or even a specific parameter, but I do not think there's any way that Mark Appel is going to get more money than Carlos Correa gets or more money than Byron Buxton gets Which, at number two.
3: Right, and that's, that's what it comes down to is, is that this system is such – and again, I don't think – I'll be interested – in most drafts going forward, I don't think the number one pick is going to get the slot allotment because you're to be the – we've had a couple of years lately where it was interesting where there was one guy who was clearly number one. Bryce Harper probably gets the allotment. Steven Strasburg probably gets the allotment. But you have, you know, if you're talking about the year you have a, a Tyone and a Machado and a couple of guys, you know, if you have years like where – or last year where you had not, you know, seven or eight guys you could love – I think that you're, it's going to be something where the, number one, the team who has got the number one pick is going to be able to play that off of each other, play it off of other players. Hey, if you don't want this right now, we can move on. And if we move on, there's enough guys out there that you could be saying goodbye to one, two, you know, $1 or two million dollars. Are you willing to risk that? And I think, that, I think for once MLB has set up a system where the teams actually do have more leverage than the players. Well, I think,
1: too, J.G., you'll see, too, I think you may see people do what the Astros did, not only if there isn't that clear guy and they can look at a a number of guys as a candidate. I think you may see more teams at number one do what the Astros did, which is not engage these guys in lengthy discussions and giving them a chance like, hey, if my guy, you know, I'm, I'm taking my guy, whether I'm trying to or not, my guy's falling out of the mix at number one. Well, I better find him at home at two or three. The Astros didn't let any of those guys do that. They kind of, you know, engaged. You know, they said they were looking at five guys, but they didn't really negotiate or talk parameters with any of those guys until maybe an hour or two before the draft. And at that point, if you weren't, you know, they kind of had the hand on all those guys. You know, if you weren't coming here, you better have talked somewhere else and be ready to go there, or you could fall. And that's what happened to Appel.
3: And, and that's the thing that you know you're going to see going forward. I, I did want to ask uh, about another team before we wrap here. Up here. The Blue Jays, I thought, had a very interesting draft because they – I'd say I, – I would argue that more than any other team, they in the top rounds took – they had some extra picks, but they took some potentially tough signs. What did. They you? did. Yeah. I, 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 their
1: draft fascinated me because they have an $8.8 million pool, which is more than most teams, I think – Because they had five picks in the first and first, supplemental first yeah, round. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think – and you got. I know we've had some guys break down the senior. I think rounds four through ten are all college seniors, aren't yes. they? Yes. Yeah. So that's, you know I'm I'm looking here. i I'm, I'm doing the math real quick in my head. That's about a million two.
3: Yeah, one point two in, mil. In, the,
1: in those rounds, and to be honest, they're probably signing those seven guys for under fifty thousand so, dollars. No, no. Go so wait, I can,
3: wait. I can probably give you better info on that. And then John Manuel had a story up. He talked to their fourth round pick, Tucker Donahue. All right. He wouldn't give them the exact number, but he said he's agreed to a deal that's in four digits. Yeah, so, well, that's what
1: I'm saying. I mean, I think it's actually all getting $5,000 apiece. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, you're going to have saying, like oh, one you're saying all of them for 50000 Okay. Yeah, total. I'm saying combined. So you're yeah. going to have like one one or one two to play with. And looking at this, you know, DJ Davis, you know, I, you know, I don't know what he's going to sign for. My guess is it might be a little bit under the pool amount. You know, Marcus Stroman, who I've talked about, and I think he's still at 22. Uh, you know, my, again, I mean, I don't know if they talked money with him. I don't think he's going to get more than that pool amount. You know, Matt Smoral going to cost a little extra there. Uh, with the 50th pick, but there's a guy who could have been a mid-first-round pick um, if he hadn't broken a bone in his foot. So already right there, you've got one of the best athletes in the draft in Davis, maybe the guy with the most electric arm in the draft is Stroman, and Matt Smorl, who went about 35 picks lower than he had. Um, you've know, you got Mitch Nay, who was an Arizona high school third baseman, who kind of rose up charts. You know, I, I, you know, I'll be curious to see what he signs for. He may be a guy that you discount a little bit there at 885,000. dollars you know, Tyler Gonzalez is another guy who's got you know, very, you know, one of the best arms in this draft, just electric, electric stuff. At 60, you know, I mean, I, I think he's fairly signable. I mean, you're probably going to get him for around that 857 number. You know, and then you got Chase DeJong, a projectable California high school kid, you know, at 620. But you know, the guy who's, who's going to be fascinating to me, J.J., I, and maybe they don't sign him, and if they don't, you know, they, they made a run at him. But the Anthony Alford kid in the third round, I mean, he, D.J. Davis, and Byron Buxton, who went number two overall, were the best athletes in the draft. Big-time Southern Miss football recruit. You know, his pool amount's 424. Now, I mean, that's not going to get it done. But this is a guy, had he been willing to go, willing to sign and give up football, and he had a lot of leverage because of the football commitment, might have been a $2 million player, you know, would have probably been drafted higher. I don't know if they could pull off Anthony Alford, but to be honest, if they sign the six guys ahead of him, it's still a tremendous draft.
3: And now my question is, is that, you know, well, it'd be interesting. One thing I was a little surprised with was, after the tenth round, having done all that, they didn't. I didn't see a whole lot of guys listed that you would say, okay, well, that's a guy who could. They could end up, you know, shuffling some of that money to later. A uh, Brandon Lopez who they took very late, maybe I guess could be one of those guys. But if they don't, if they don't get offered, where do you think that money goes?
1: Um, I think if they don't get, I mean, some of the money you're going to much- lose
3: four hundred twenty-four thousand of that money they've socked aside for that.
1: Right, and, and the thing is, you know, it's – I mean, uh, Smorl's going to get some extra money, but let's say they, they create – well, we just said, you know, they're probably going to create an extra $1.1, $1.2 million from rounds four through ten. Now, let's say Smorl – I'm just pulling a number out of the air. Let's say he takes half that, so you have 600000 to play with. I think what they probably do is, you know, they have some mid-level high school guys you sign. You know, they got one of the best Canadian players in this draft, Ryan Kellogg in the 12th round. You know, maybe you sign him for 300000 you got Ryan Barucki, who's one of the best players from up here in Illinois, who had elbow issues, but would have been like a top ten round pick. You know, maybe you give him two fifty. They got William Dupont in the sixteenth round, who's an intriguing raw athlete. You know, maybe you sign him for three hundred. You know, those types of guys. You know, they got another Canadian, Nathan D'Souza, in the twenty sixth round. You got a Cole Irvine, who's kind of an interesting, projectable lefty from Anaheim. You know, so maybe, maybe they don't get a big splash like but they, they would have with that out. But but maybe you sign two or three of these guys for three hundred thousand dollars each. And the thing I kind of like about it is, you know, they don't have that. You know, that we were talking about the Pirates. They don't have a Walker Buehler or with the Astros Hunter Verant. They don't have a guy you're looking at like, okay, that guy's a million dollar guy. But they probably have six or seven guys here um, who were, you know, you, you might have in the old rules signed for three hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, and so you could pick off two or three of them, and you have enough candidates that, you know, if one guy turns it down, you can give it to another. So I, I think they, they probably spread it around in those rounds a little bit. And do remember,
3: one of the things with that is I wanted to point out, people uh, don't uh, understand yet. Those guys we talked about in later in the 10th round, if you give 300000 to one of those guys, it's only cost, cost 200000 of your bonus pool. So that was kind of one of the things. That, to me, was the most perverse part of this draft, is that uh, spelled this out in the story that's on the, the, the draft blog, but to explain it here, if you have one guy you like at two hundred and fifty thousand and another guy you like at five thousand, well, in the past you would take the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar guy in the fourth or fifth round and you would take the thousand dollar guy in the uh, you know twenty-fifth round or whatever, the five thousand dollar guy. If you did that, that would cost two hundred and fifty thousand of your bonus allotment. Under the new system, if you reverse that and you say, okay, we're going to take the $5,000 guy in the top 10 rounds, and we're going to take the $250,000 guy in the later rounds, by doing that, you've essentially saved yourself $195,000 to $100,000 of your bonus allotment because the first $100,000 for a post-10th rounder is essentially free to your, for your allotment. Which so is
1: exactly, a- and as a bonus too – if you don't sign him, you know, you know, you know you're signing the $5,000 guy. So you don't have to worry about his bonus pool allocation disappearing. The 11th round guy or, or later round guy, if I don't sign him, you know it's a tougher sign. Then that bonus money you know, dies away. And just to clarify in case – because I know these rules are confusing for a lot of our listeners. There was no bonus pool previously. You know, you, you, if you, you want to pay a guy $250,000, it really didn't matter if you paid him that in round 6 or round 32 you know if mlb might tell you not to do it but it you know there was no budget you had to fit him in or you'd lose draft picks you would just get mlb angry at you now there's a very specific reason for doing this and and when i talked to teams i mean i thought you, i thought some teams would do this jj before the draft that you'd have some teams picking some college seniors around 6 through 10 i didn't see 57 seniors going around 6 through 10 i didn't think you'd see some teams i thought you might see a team maybe take four college seniors around six through 10, but you have like five or six teams that pretty much went all college seniors there to save, you know, seven hundred eight hundred thousand dollars
3: yeah. And that's, I mean, we, we had one of our interns, Clint Longenecker, uh, worked it up, you know, 57, I think this year. And in, in, if you look back at the last, uh, four or five years before that, the average was 30. So that just gives you an idea of, you know, uh, of how different it was this year. And and I have to admit, you know, taking you behind the the curtain here. A little frustrating for us here at Baseball America because we pride ourselves on you're gonna have a scouting report for everyone in the top ten rounds, uh, you know, hopefully ideally as the guys picked. There were some guys taken who, you know, weren't top ten round talents and so it's a little tougher to have scouting reports on some of those guys. And so we've had to do a little scrambling to to kind of fill that in. Now, on the flip side, we've had a lot more scouting reports on guys taken after the tenth round because there was more of those guys who fell, which is you know maybe too much behind the curtain, but that's been kind of an interesting part of this for us.
1: I was proud. I'm going to brag here a little bit that I sometimes wonder if I dig too deep before the draft. You know, does it really matter to you know, have stuff? I, I'm proud to say there were only two guys. There were only two guys out of my Midwest region that I had to go ahead and make a call to find information on, that at least I had information on most of my guys who kind of came out of nowhere. So I, was, I took a little pride on that, a little pride in that, J.J., on draft day or on the second day of the draft that I wasn't scrambling as much as I might have had to otherwise.
3: Uh, I, I will say there were a couple other guys who were scrambling, but they were calling on guys and they were hearing from scouts like, that guy? Really? That guy was taken? You know, we didn't turn that guy in at all. You know, or you know, well, um, he doesn't have anything plus, you know, and, and things like that. But um the last count for our uh, listeners the last count we were sitting at six hundred and two scouting ref- reports for players who were drafted. So uh Pretty much, no matter what team you're a fan of, we're going to have scouting reports on most all of the guys who, who were taken. For, for your Not most. We have a scouting reports for roughly 50% of everyone who was taken. So You know what's interesting to me, too, JJ, is I was looking at the BA500. I didn't count up the
1: exact number. We, 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 I think there's about 100 players out of the BA500 who
3: didn't get drafted, most of them high schoolers who just got priced out of the draft. Yeah, the, the the interesting thing, this is one of the great things about the BA 500, which this is the first year we've had it like this. Yeah, if you click on undrafted, you know, players from uh, you know, and see, you know, where where they where they rank on there. Um, the interesting thing is there are a couple of college guys on there too, which generally the college guys who went undrafted, pretty much what it comes down to is they largely comes down to that they were injured. And right. so teams weren't willing to take a pick on, you know, which which is still though it's interesting to me because the high school guys, pretty much you can explain with that is. okay well that guy, it wasn't going to be worth the pick because he wasn't signing. Right. But you have Christian Jones uh, was number three fifteen a left-hander from Oregon. It, there's some, there's injury issues there. Um, you have you know you go a little further. You have uh, uh, well Michael Rattery at Rice is our next guy,
1: and there you have the issue where it's a it's a good school, he had a bad year and he wasn't just going to sign for $100,000 and give up his last year at Rice.
3: Right. And then you're talking guys in the 400s where, again, it comes down to, you know, I'll be interested to see, like, I was entering when I was entering a, round, a draft round yesterday, and it's like, a, you know, there was a Yale catcher taken in the late rounds, and I'm thinking, you yeah, know, that guy's probably not going to sign. I'm going to guess that, that he might have a, a, some other opportunities that may pay him a little bit more than the 5000 bonus he's going to get.
1: Yeah, I mean, unless he's a
3: senior, in which case he might. But yeah, I mean, you're not going to sign a Yale junior for for less than that, you know. But well, we've been going on for about an hour here, and someone is very insistently trying to reach Jim, so uh, we're going to wrap this up. It's actually
1: multiple people. I'm getting like three different phone calls here in the
3: last five minutes. So, <laughs> so, but uh, but thanks for the time, Jim. Thanks for the download, all of our listeners. Uh, we want to thanks again, Dick Sporting Goods, which sponsors all of our uh, draft coverage this year. It's so, uh, you know, we, we've got at least uh, a day before we start looking ahead to the 2013 draft. The, 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 reality, the reality also is we've got to start working on uh, futures game rosters to help out MLB and all coming up with that and all. So it never stops. No, it never does. But at least we can kind of catch our breath at least over the weekend, hopefully. Hopefully. And we've also, of course, got college re- super regionals going on this weekend. And then Omaha comes up. But this is a great time of year. We love this kind of stuff. So thanks for the download. Thanks for... Uh, Uh, all the kind things on our Twitter feed that people said about our draft coverage and all, We, we thank you all for all that. We enjoy doing it. And we'll be back again soon. Thanks again.